Morning, y'all. If, if you have a Bible, open up with me, if you would, to Psalms 95. Psalm 95 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. If, if you're new or you're visiting with us, welcome. We're kind of in between series here in a couple weeks. We're going to start a study of uh, the book of Ephesians, and kind of that'll carry us through the fall up until Advent, and then we'll pick it back up in the spring to hope, hopefully finish out kind of our, our year-long venture through one particular book. Uh, we just finished a series on our core values last week, and so if you were uh, here for that, again, my pitch or my appeal is if you're new to Living Hope or you've yet to become a member of Living Hope, our membership class is coming up in September, and that's really where we flesh out those values even further and uh, call you to commit to the church as we commit to you as leaders, elders, and pastors here. But in this in-between week, I wanted to just take a minute and go back into the Old Testament. My, our staff has been going through a, a devotional in the book of Psalms. And this, when we hit this Psalm 95 a couple weeks ago, it really spoke to me. I thought, man, as a church, we sometimes forget or sometimes need to be reminded of why we gather as the church. What, what God summons us to, what he calls us to, why we practice what we practice and, and go through the, the particular habits and motions that we go through on a particular Sunday. And so we're going to look at that today in Psalm 95, as the psalmist here writes for us this, um, this edict or this summons to worship the Lord, as the people of God to come together and to lift up God and to reflect on God and to, to come under his authority, his power, uh, and, and the goodness of his word. That's what we see here in Psalm 95 as we jump in in verse 1. The psalmist writes, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights and the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go, always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so we're already kind of beginning the process of leaning into uh, another election year next year, and God help us pray for me and all that. That just seems like a when the people of the church tend to kind of get whipped up into a frenzy for some reason or another. But uh, we're going there nonetheless. 2024 will be an election year. But as we start that process, they, often you see the ads beginning to roll as they've started to come across your TV where, you know, whoever the political opponent is is the worst human on the planet. And you get that scary deep voice guy who um, apparently makes a lot of money this time of year. Don't vote for Bill Jones. He likes to harm children. You know, that guy that comes on your TV. Um, but it got me to thinking last week when I was watching some of those ads pop up, like, what would be my, if I were to run, like, you got to have a platform and I'd want to do something original. What would be, if, if you were to elect me to government office, what would be my platform? And immediately I thought, I, I know what it is. Um, I would commit that we as a people and as a nation, and as a country would audit our customs, things that we practice and do as a people while I was in office and just carte blanche eliminate some things because there's some things that we do customarily as a people that 
have run their course. I'm, I, I just think that, that I don't think that they're of value anymore. They haven't kept up with the times. So let me give you, for instance, so you can see if you would elect me or not. Writing thank you cards after your wedding. This is one of the things that I would say, this just needs to go away. Like whenever I give anyone a wedding gift, I usually include in that gift, my real gift to you is not the toaster. My real gift to you is you don't need to send me a thank you card. That's one less card you got to write, one less fight you got to get in with your new spouse. You guys are tired. You went through the process of having a wedding. You probably went on a honeymoon. You did all the hoopla travel. The last thing you need to do is sit down and handwrite a bunch of cards. I get it. Like at some point in time when postage wasn't $12 to send a letter and you had no other way of communication, this is probably a pretty good practice. But today, in this day and age, if I gave you a toaster for your wedding and you acknowledged it by sending me an emoji of a toaster and a thumbs up emoji, I would feel like, I would feel like you took some time to think that out and that would suffice for telling me thank you. And I would probably like your text and we would be done. The whole transaction would cost us $0 and maybe 30 seconds. If you went above and beyond and sent me a, a, a GIF or a GIF, however you say it, some animated text of some movie scene where someone gave someone a toaster, I would really feel valued. Don't send me the thank you note. So that's just one example. Like we need to audit the customs. Why do we do what we do? Why is this practice in place and everyone just sort of accepts it as, as normative and, 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 and functional for human adults? Like let's rethink these things. That would be my pitch. You wouldn't elect me, obviously, but that's what I would go for. Now, I think that that same principle applies when you look at the practice of what we're even doing right now. You sitting passively in a very comfortable chair with air conditioning and good lighting and good sound, hopefully, and listening to a guy talk for, Lord willing, 25 to 30 minutes that, about God and the Bible. And we just sang some songs. Why do we do this? What about this custom or this practice is given to us in Scripture? What, what about the way that we go about even worshiping? Why did we recite certain things together? Why did the people around you say collectively, thanks be to God when we read the Scriptures? What, what is that all about? What is it with these customs and these practices and these habits of worship that we get both from the Scriptures and, and from uh, church history that, that are meant to form us and shape us as the people of God. That's what I'm going to look at today here in Psalm 95. I think the psalmist in summoning the people of God to worship God gives us a bit of an outline for what worship is and how worship works. What it means for the people of God to, to lift up or to elevate God and to come under his authority, to be, to be directed by his word to have their faith shaped in a particular direction, and even to be warned or reminded that there's consequences for not following through with this practice. There's perhaps danger on the horizon for people who reject these practices, reject these customs, re reject this way of encountering God. So I want to show you, I think, three things that happen in worship, three, three principles of worship that emerge from Psalm 95 that today, if we could reevaluate why are we here and what are we supposed to be doing uh, that perhaps would recapture our imagination, would, would drive our affections back to the Lord so that we would understand once again, this is why I got out of bed. This is why I drove to you know, this particular field and this particular building this morning to sit around a bunch of people, some of whom may very well be strangers, to say certain things, to sing certain songs, and to hear, once again, the good news of the gospel. Uh, the first thing that I think that we see the psalmist calling the people to is adoration. The practice of worship is the practice of adoring God, of lifting him up, of, of 
particularly a few practices that, that make or shape the heart for adoration, to be reminded of who God is so that our hearts or our affections are inclined heavenward to, to look to the person of God and to consider who he is and what he's done for us. The first practice that we want to look at in worship is the practice of adoration. Look back in verse 1. The psalmist writes, and I think this is really important, Oh, come. There's a summons. Oh, oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Here it is in verse 2 again. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. In other words, the, the way that the people of God learn to adore God is not just by singing, we'll talk about that in a second, but by coming together. In other words, uh, adoration is, is, is a part of the practice of gathering. When we adore God, we gather together to do so. Now, some people would say, and I've heard this a lot in my years as a Christian or as a pastor, I really connect well with God when I'm all alone in nature. And we see in just a second, there's some reflecting upon nature that the psalmist does that does incline the, the heart in a particular direction. But there's something about the people of God gathering together, that worship is a practice of community, not done in isolation, whereby God has fashioned us in some sense to be reminded about who we are and what he's done. Gathering is at the heart of the people of God coming together and coming into his presence. And we come together for the express purposes of adoring God, being reminded of his character, being reminded of his nature, being reminded of his worth. This is, this is a formative practice for us as God's people, to gather regularly. When Living Hope first started, I remember early on some of our early meetings about like, what are we going to be? Who do we want to be as a church? We would say certain things that at the time sounded very spiritual or pithy. We would say things like, we just don't want to play church. We don't want to just invite people to an event on Sunday. And that's true. We want to call folks into community. We want to be on mission together. Everything we just talked about in our core value series is true about who we are as a church. But I think we've lost something by downplaying what's happening in this moment. That, that even, even though there was at some time, perhaps in, 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 in our particular part of the world, a, a pattern or a habit of people just coming to church for the sake of coming to church. I do think that as, our, as, as culture around us has rejected the notion of church, perhaps to a degree that, the, that our country has not seen before, our, our, our schedules are overtaxed, our, our, our continual communication with the outside world, is, as we've gotten to a place where we're, we're overscheduled and it's really kind of hard sometimes to gather as the people of God, now more than ever, let us not lose the practice of gathering. Like when COVID happened and we, we had to go online as a church, there was a kind of a little bit of a loss for us. Like we love that there are folks watching right now live. We love that if you're not here on a Sunday, you can still connect in that way. But for us, it was always like, no, we need to be in the same room together. If Jesus became flesh and blood, if he didn't just you know, download who he was to the world, but showed up in person, then there's something about that that it informs why it's important for us as people to be together. The people of God adore God by gathering together, by going through this formative practice of assembling together, singing songs together, uh, being reminded of who God is and what he's done together. I would just challenge you this morning, if you could, over the next couple of weeks, block off four Sundays, six Sundays, and say, I'm going to commit I'm going to come, you know, whatever's going on in my schedule or in my life, I'm going to commit to be present with the people of God just to see if God can form me, shape me, incline my worship in a new way 
simply by gathering with God's people. And then the psalmist says, when we gather, we gather to sing. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us, let us sing songs of praise. The psalmist says, when we come together, it's not just coming together for the sake of fellowship or hanging out or catching up with one another. It's coming together, specifically, he says, to sing. Now, in many parts of life, this seems kind of weird. You don't probably do this at your job. You know, the accounting department doesn't get together and do a chant or a song, or if it does, that's a little bit weird, right? If you don't do it in your job, you probably don't do it when you're recreating. Like, why? Why singing? And I watched a lot of college football yesterday. Let me tell you why singing. You know, you, you can see this in some other parts of life. If you're a fan of, you know, European soccer clubs, anytime you turn on one of those games, you're going to hear a whole lot of people chanting things in a language you may not understand. If, if you watched football yesterday, you'll see a lot of people singing a lot of songs together, some of which are not particularly even good songs. You know, the, the, particular, the, the alma mater song for the university I cheer for, for University of Oklahoma, it's a terrible song, but I know all the words to it. I don't really know why, but we sing it when we get together. We assemble together. It's something that you do that I think forms the people. It tells everyone we're kind of in this thing together. It draws people together. It gives words to express emotion or to incline the heart. In other words, singing is a formative practice for people because it, it does something to us. Not only does it call us together and unify us in some way, it also it gives us truth that then gets buried in our brains sometimes in ways that we can't get it out. Like I've told you guys before, I, if, you, if you could take 70s country and 90s hip-hop out of my brain and replace it with science, I would cure cancer. It's eating that much brain space up all the time. And I don't know how to get it out, but it's in there. And that's what songs do. They somehow connect neurologically in our minds, and they're then implanted, and you can't get them out. There's probably, there's probably I don't know, a good 30 40% of the Bible that I've memorized in my life has happened through song. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I know that because at the first church where I was baptized, we sang a terrible song, and that was kind of the only words in it that I could pick up on. And I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a scripture. The melody's terrible. I don't like the way we sing it, but I know that verse now. Psalm 139, years ago, this band named Mercy Me wrote a song that's just Psalm 139. I know Psalm 139 through a song. You've searched me and you know me. You're familiar with all my ways. You've laid your hand upon me, a knowledge that is too wonderful for me to even attain. If I were to go down into the depths of Sheol, if I were to rise on the mountains as of the sea, if I were to make my bed in the depths, even there, Lord, you would be. That's a song. And so maybe for you, you can see this morning the importance of the people of God singing because it it causes our hearts to take in knowledge, take in wisdom, take in truth such that we can adore God without even necessarily having to go through any sort of extra steps. We can sing the truth of who God is back to him, and it forms us. So my challenge to you would just simply be this. If you're going to be here the next four or six weeks, sing. Make a joyful noise. It doesn't say to make an on-key noise. You can be a terrible singer and still participate in the worship of God. Praise the Lord. I would be in big trouble if that weren't the case. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And then finally, the psalmist here shows us that it's not just gathering together to sing songs. They also seem to be committed to reflecting on who God is. If you look at verse 3, for instance. So the psalmist says, look, come together. Oh, come, let us gather. Let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise unto the Lord. For this is who God is. For the Lord is a great God 
and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights and the, the mountains are his as well. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Even this, by the way, is a song. Our kids probably sing it over in LH Kids sometimes. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. Boop, boop, boop. I think that's how it goes. Like even this is a song, but it's a reflection on the nature of God. And that's what the people of God do. When we gather together, we reflect on him. It says it again down in, uh, in verse 7. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And then the psalmist reflects back on a story that happened back in Exodus chapter 17, back in Numbers chapter 11. It says, oh, by the way, be reminded. There's consequences if we fail to adore God. If we put God to the test, we won't enter into his rest. And so this happens. The people of God come together. They sing these songs. They adore God by spending time reflecting on the ways that he's shown his love. They adore God by reflecting on the ways that he's demonstrated his character. Now, I'm a dad. And every so often, every so often this happens in my house. And it is utterly delightful. Every so often one of my kids will say something like this. Hey, dad, thanks for the grilled cheese. I'm like, yeah, you acknowledged it. The grilled cheese didn't just materialize like manna from heaven. Dad stood over the griddle and made it for you. Hey, hey, Dad, you know, thanks for the AC. Try that one a couple weeks ago. Like, someone had to pay the bills that kept the AC on. Hey, hey Dad, how about the lighting? Hey, you could read tonight and do your homework. Hey, hey, Dad, thanks for the rent. You know, whatever. Like, every so often it connects, and my kids are like, oh, as I reflect on this thing, I realize this is a gift, and this is good, and it came from a father who loves me. And that, that's, that's adoration. As a dad, I know whenever I experience that, it, it, it lights me up. So it's got to be the same the way that God designed us to come together and say, hey, Father, thank you for these things in my life. Thank you for calling us together. Thank you for people who, who will check in on me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time in worship, whatever it may be. So I would challenge you as you come to worship as a part of the church, as a part of the people of God, consider the ways, reflect on the ways that God and his faithfulness has been kind to you. The way his mercy has shaped you, the way his love has shown up in your life over the past week. See what it does to incline your heart towards adoration, towards loving God, thinking high thoughts of God, having affections for the person of God. Adoration is formative for the people of God. Secondly, the author shows us that there's not just this act of coming together to lift God up, but there's also in lifting God up, we bring ourselves low. So part of the the function of worship in the life of a follower of Jesus is to call us to surrender. As God is elevated, we become more increasingly aware of our humble estate before the Lord. And so the psalmist says that that brings all that we are under the authority of who God is. We surrender our heart. We surrender our mind. We surrender our will. When we worship, we elevate and put glory in God's category, and we lay ourselves low before his authority. That's part of what worship trains us to do. So first off, the psalmist tells us that whenever you come into worship, pursue joy, which means that you've got to surrender your heart to the Lord. If you're truly going to worship the Lord, you've got to bring your affections under the authority of God such that you can begin to see and connect the dots for ways of joy to flow into your heart and life. Joy is going to be a practice, then the, the psalmist is saying. Let us come together and sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It doesn't say if you feel like it. He doesn't say if, despite the fact that you're, you know, 
you have reasons to not be joyful. No, he summons you to the practice of joy, which I think means, at minimum, the joy then for the follower of Jesus is a choice. We can choose to incline our hearts in such a way or towards such a direction of who God is, such that if we surrender our hearts to the Lord, he may have on the other side of whatever we're experiencing joy for us. When we we sing songs of joy, when we're reminded of the ways that whatever is good in our life is a gift, it's a gift from a loving father who graciously gives us all good things, as 1 John tells us, that when we're reminded of those things, our hearts in surrender to the Lord can actually begin to pursue joy, not happiness. Happiness can be fleeting. C.S. Lewis once said, if you come to, to Jesus to make your, don't come to Jesus to make yourself happy. He said, I was always fully aware a bottle of pork could do that. I come to Jesus to find true and lasting joy, something that transcends my experiences and my circumstances. Joy, this deep-seated understanding that my heart is surrendered to the Lord so that despite whatever I'm facing in my life, despite whatever terrible circumstances may have befallen me, I know that the Lord is with me and he cares for me. As the psalmist says here, he is my God and I am the sheep of his pasture. He'll tend to me. He'll walk with me. He He won't leave me or forsake me. He won't abandon me. He'll be with me in the midst of whatever I face. Therefore, I can find joy. So the people of God surrender their hearts as they pursue joy. They surrender their body. Look at what the psalmist says. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. In other words, the psalmist says part of worship is assuming a, a humble position or a humble posture before the Lord. It's not just being reminded that God is God and he made all the things and he's the sovereign who's in charge. It's also that In knowing that and understanding it, we come underneath that. And even to the point where we lay our bodies down in a particular fashion, where we assume a particular posture. Some of y'all may hear that and think, man, that sounds weird. Who does that? Who in the midst of a gathering would get on their knees or, or bow all the way down to the ground? Apparently, the people of God do. I mean, there's, there's really nothing in Scripture that tells us to close our eyes when we pray, but there is stuff in Scripture that says, get on your knees. Lay, lay completely flat. Bow down before God. Assume a particular posture with your body that, that acknowledges humility and acknowledges that God is God and you are not. We're commanded to do that. So I just asked this morning, what would it look like for you to incorporate that practice as an act of surrender? What would it look like for your body to assume a certain posture so that it would reflect back, God is God and I am not? And maybe perhaps even in the practice of surrendering yourself physically in that way, you would begin to see a spiritual surrender happen as well. The aspirations or ambitions that you may have to try to be your own Lord and Savior would start to subsist if perhaps you just laid low before God, literally. And then third, the psalmist calls us in surrender to, to lay our will down as well, to, to move towards faith and obedience. It's not just that you lay your body down, but, but worship trains us to surrender our, our aspirations, our desires, our drives, our, our determination. All of that goes under the authority of God. One of the key features of worship is that it forms the will of the worshiper. Those who worship recognize that God is in 
is in the process of shaping them and that their decisions and their understanding about how the world works or whatever their next best step is, it has to be reformed by God himself. That's why the author here says at the end of this, hey, look, if you hear the voice of the Lord today, don't turn away from that. Our, our fathers, he says, did that. He references Exodus 17 and Numbers 11, this, this episode in Meribah where, where the people of God were complaining to Moses, saying that the only reason that, that God saved us from Egypt, the only reason why we were led on the Exodus was so that God could take us out in the middle of the desert and kill us. And Moses there strikes a rock with a, with a staff and water flows from the rock so that the people of God could be sustained. And they said it was called at that place the place of the complaining. In other words, though they had followed the Lord into the assembly, they haven't surrendered their will. They were still disbelieving that God was good or that God was kind. I love the way that, that the psalmist says it here. He says, when your fathers put me to the test in verse, verse 9 and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. In other words, I think it's entirely possible that the people of God can gather under the authority of the Lord and then still be like, oh, yeah, God, prove it. You want me to do what I'm supposed to do? Prove it to me. When God has already sustained you, supplied for you, brought you into to, to loving grace and mercy and a right relationship with him through Jesus, and then we still continue to persist in our stubborn wills against faith and against obedience. Worship then trains us to reconsider who is actually the Lord. Worship forms us to lay down our our deadly doing and all the things that we think that we can clutch or grip or take hold of that will somehow rescue us in the end. Worship is an act of surrendering the will, coming under God's authority and laying down our, our vain attempts at being God ourselves. And I think what the psalmist leads all this up to, and the reason that it kind of ends on what seems to be a little bit of a, a warning, you have this high praise at the beginning of the psalm, come, come together, sing songs, shout for joy, worship, kneel, bow down. Oh, by the way, if you don't, it can go really bad for you. The reason that he does that, I believe, is that worship is about our response to God. When we come together, we, we adore God. That's part of what we do in worship. When we come together, we're collectively practicing surrender to the, the person of God in our heart, in our, in our minds, in, in our emotions, in our will, in all the ways. But ultimately, worship is about summoning us together for the purpose of, of responding to who God is and what he's done. Worship is about learning to respond to who God is and what he's done. The psalmist says, we respond first off to the greatness of God. Verses 7 and 8. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't be like Israel in the desert. Hear him. Respond to him. Move towards him because he's in radical pursuit of you always. He's always after you. Just turn. Come back to him. Be reminded of him. Lean into him. Consider him but respond to him in his greatness. Worship invites the people of God to respond to the power of God. That's why the psalmist, I think, opens this up. For God is our God, and he's the creator of all the things. You feel connected out in nature? Perhaps it's because out in nature, that's where you see, I'm really small and God's really big. And it's in that moment that I realize I've got to respond to the magnitude of my creator, to both his power and to his presence. Secondly, when we worship, we respond to the kindness of God. The psalmist reminds us, God is kind. We are the sheep of his pasture. 
like a shepherd who tends us. He cares for us. We respond to God because he is kind and long-suffering with us. We respond to God because he's ever-present. He's, he's always, as Jesus once said, standing at the door and knocking. The, the invitation to be welcomed in amongst his people is perpetual and unending. His grace never ceases. And so because he's kind to us, when we gather together, we respond to his kindness. We do so with gratitude. We do so with worship. We do so with praise. We do so with singing because we're perceptive and we're aware of the fact that were it not for God pursuing me, I would be utterly lost without hope, without a sense of of identity or purpose in the world. That's what it means to respond to the kindness of God. And then lastly, the psalmist holds out for us here the, the rest of God. That's how he ends this, that the people who at Meribah who rejected God, who put him to the test, verse 11, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. This is right at the very heart of what we do Sunday in and Sunday out at Living Hope. We desire for you to experience Sabbath rest. And what we mean by that is that even the way that our worship is shaped here at Living Hope, we come together and we sing songs. And you probably may not have noticed this this morning, but we sing songs to start our worship that's usually about the greatness of God. We're adoring him together. And then as we come together, we, we sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. God is kind. Praise him, all creatures here below. God is great. We are under his authority. He's above us. Praise him above you heavenly hosts, meaning there's a heavenly plane or a realm that we may not even have been aware of the past six days, but we're reminded of when we gather because we know that we're not alone. And not only are we not alone, this, this life is not all there is. There's something else. We, we praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, God, three in one. And that act begins or initiates for us a process where we adore God and then we confess our sins together. Because in... in communal or corporate confession, we're reminded that were it not for Jesus, we, we don't have anything to sing about. Were it not for grace, were it not for God's mercy towards us, the blood of Jesus being shed on our behalf, Jesus raising again from the grave to give us new life, we, have, we above all people, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, are to be most pitied. There's nothing for us to sing about, but we confess our sins. Why? Because we receive after confession always a word of absolution. This is what God has done for us in Jesus. His yes and amen is found in his only son. In his death and his resurrection. So you can rest. So all of us collectively, at least once a week, should be able to have this experience in worship. where We breathe a gospel sigh of relief. Oh, thank God. The massive amount of sins and failures that accounted, that I've built up. Over the past week, the way the ledger sheet of the past week is so stacked against me and I am living in the red, I just got reminded it is finished. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I've been reconciled to God. My, my life is not my own, as Paul would once say. I've been bought with a price because he loved me and gave himself for me. And then in that, I can find spiritual rest. Physical rest, emotional rest. If I really surrender my will and my body and my heart, the the rest of God comes flooding into that. That's what God was had on offer for the children of Israel. I'm taking you out of slavery and to a land that is promised to you. And in worship, you're reminded of that. You reflect on that. Here in just a second, you eat and drink that. That's the point of our gathering. It's the reason that we're here today. It's why we do what we do. 
So, Lord, would our souls breathe a sigh of relief this morning? Would the, the truth of what our heart longs for, to see and to experience, the person of Jesus taken in our midst and manifested in our ability to find rest in him, Lord, would you grant that to us this morning by your spirit? And Jesus, as we come to your table and we're once again reminded that you are here with us in our midst, that you want to serve us with divine rest that we could not attain through our own power, might, or ability, Lord, would we once again take you in and then be sent out as a people who've been restored and renewed by faith. It's in the person of Jesus. In his name alone, we pray these things. Amen.